0: Come see the new quiz show, Go Fact Yourself, with special guests Andy Richter and fresh airs Tanya Mosley. It's March 23rd at the Crawford. Get your tickets at las.com slash events.
1: home broadcast center this is take two me martinez what to do with malls or stores shut down by sales moving online well how about affordable housing california lawmakers are figuring out how doable that is plus i am terrified of butterflies not kidding about that but that doesn't mean i hate them we'll hear about a statewide effort to give monarch butterflies the milkweed they need to survive and thrive and stay fluttering it's all ahead on take two From 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org, this is Take Two. May Martinez, thanks for being with us today. Coming up, the California Supreme Court here's a case that could raise the bar for how and when capital punishment is applied in the state. We'll hear more about what's at stake just ahead. But first, 43 percent of Californians are fully vaccinated against COVID-19, while more than 50 percent of L.A. County residents 16 and older are inoculated. Now, there's still a lot of people to go through, and the state is now nudging them along a little bit with millions of dollars in incentives. Now, to discuss all of this and to answer all your coronavirus-related questions, we have with us Dr. Dean Blumberg, professor of medicine and chief of pediatric infectious diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital. Doctor, welcome back.
2: Thank you. And before we get started, I just want to congratulate you on being promoted to the national stage.
1: Oh, I'm I'm blushing. <laughs> thank you, doctor. I, I've got a I got a case of the chills now. Can you help me with anything? <laughs> with um, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I can't. Uh, it, uh, I'm surprised they actually picked me, but I can't wait to get started. But I'm sad to leave KPCC eventually. All right, let's start now. Um, I want to start with the vaccination numbers because uh, your hospital is in Sacramento County. And I understand there's a a little bit of a, a lag there. So what's contributing to that in your area? Is it just maybe hesitancy about getting the shot or is there more to it than that?
2: Yeah, unfortunately, Sacramento County's vaccination rate is below the state average and certainly below L.A. County's average. And, you know, it's it's a multifactorial issue. We think it's a combination of access and vaccine hesitancy. Although all um, groups have lower rates um, than the statewide averages, it's lowest among Black, Latino, and multiracial residents. And so we feel that specific outreach to these communities is really important.
1: When it comes to hesitancy, doctor, I mean, what have you learned from people as to reasons, reasons they're reluctant to get the vaccine? And how do you, as a medical professional, number one, try to combat that, and number two, stay patient, too?
2: Well, I think what's what we've learned is that there are several different reasons that people will not be vaccinated. And so it's really important to listen to the individual concerns people have and respond to that with factual information. And the other thing that we've learned is that the most important thing to individuals is themselves. They're really their own individual health. So appealing to them that the right thing to do for them for their health is to be vaccinated, that will protect them, that's the most important. Important thing, and sometimes we see these appeals for public health, like you know, protect your community or we're all in it together, sort of messaging, and that's nice and warm and fuzzy, but that doesn't really change people's minds. People care more about themselves than they do about their their community,
1: doctor. I, I struggle with some family members that uh, that refuse to get the vaccine. One who says, "I uh, waiting for more information," and I and I'm try I try my best to do the sugar and not the vinegar, on, mm-hmm. on, but. I ask, what information are you waiting to hear? What, what exactly are you waiting for to, to, to all of a sudden hit your phone or hit your internet uh, that makes you say, okay, yeah, this makes sense? I, I, I'm, I'm running out of patience, i got to say.
2: You know, I think for some people they may not be aware of the the studies that have been done, the number of people in the studies, how meticulously these studies were done, how the data was evaluated, and the numbers that we have to date. So I I like to share with people that um, to date that there's been um, almost 295 million doses administered in the U.S. and more than 1.5 billion doses administered worldwide. You know, that's those are big numbers. We've got a lot of experience with these vaccines, and so. I think those kind of numbers can be very reassuring to people.
1: Governor Newsom announced a bunch of incentives to encourage people to go get the shot. Uh, is, Is this, doctor, the best way to go about it?
2: Well, I, I have to say, I think I was wrong about this because I was thinking about this a couple months ago. I think it was in Ohio where yeah, um, yeah. Governor DeWine was the first to have the lottery. And I just thought that's silly. I mean, who, who, who really is going to get vaccinated for a, for a chance in the lottery? It, it turns out, though, that a lot of these incentives, um, people are very motivated by them. And so yeah, I, I think there's a place for everything. So these incentives um, can be useful.
1: Now, I know we've had some success in L.A. County with incentives like Laker tickets. Uh, any sense at this point, though, uh, this, in, in this part of the game, that it could drive up the vaccination rates statewide?
2: Well, you know, we'll, we'll take anything. So if there are people who are reluctant, and this is going to be, be be the thing that that changes their mind and gets them vaccinated, then go for it. So I think it's going to take a multifactorial approach. For some, it's going to be one-on-one conversations with their doctors. For others, it's going to be going to um, hear their religious leaders talk about the vaccine and why it's important to be vaccinated for their own health. For others, it's going to be a lottery or Lakers tickets. I mean, it's, it's just, I think it's going to be different for different people
1: doctor when it comes to work though a lot of people lots of people keep asking whether employers can require their employees to get a shot I know you are not a doctor um, but do you have any insight on this
2: yeah, so I'm not a lawyer, but yeah, that's a oh, private Did I say that you're not a doctor? <laughs> you see
1: doctor, you threw me at the start. Now I'm a mess for the rest of the segment.
2: Uh, well, I apologize for that for throwing you off there. Yeah. So, yeah, the, you know, it's it's my understanding that really private businesses can do whatever they want as long as they're following state and local laws. There's no federal law on this. And so, you know, and I'm not aware of any state laws in California that that says that you, you can't mandate vaccines. So, businesses can can do this And we've seen this in many states where certain healthcare systems, hospitals have required the vaccine. What I've heard is we've had very high vaccination rates, 95, 98 percent vaccination rates when when those hospitals have required the vaccine. So it is being accepted when it is required.
1: Now, across the country, there have been uh, several reports of younger people who are getting sick with COVID-19 and being hospitalized. And I guess it stands to reason that young people account for more of the cases now since two thirds of adults over 65 are, are vaccinated. But what more can you tell us about uh, cases among young people in our region?
2: Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head, which is those that are going to be most vulnerable to new infection are those who are not vaccinated. And so that includes younger individuals, since we've really concentrated on vaccinating um, first responders, healthcare workers and those 65 years of age and older. That leaves the younger population susceptible. And that's why we're seeing an increase in cases um, in the younger population. That's why we're seeing higher hospitalization rates in the younger population.
1: What's your sense of how vaccinations are going among teens at this point?
2: You know, early on, we had a a big rush for teens to be vaccinated. We had parents who wanted their children protected, who realized that they were vulnerable. It helps them uh, get peace of mind when they're interacting with other young people. So to get back to community activities such as sports and other activities. And then then just similar to adults, there was a bit of a drop off where then there's some parents who are reluctant um, to have their children vaccinated. They just want more information. We don't have that much experience. in the youngest groups and those, for example, 12 to 15 years of age. But the studies show that it is safe. It is effective. So I am recommending it for those ages for when it is recommended by the FDA.
1: When teens get uh, the shot, the, the dose, does a pediatrician handle that or who handles that?
2: You know, it can be done in a variety of manners. Some pediatricians um, do have access to the vaccine and they can do it in the private offices, some associated with medical centers. So associated, for example, with like UCLA Medical Center or USC or, you know, with UC Davis, we have private practices in, uh, that are associated with the medical center and they can get it in the office there. Um, and then the um, many, many drug stores will be providing it for children also.
1: Now, we're talking to uh, Dr. Dean Blumberg, Professor of Medicine and Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital. Um, Doctor, always a lot of focus on the variants, uh, but it is certainly hard to keep track of all of them. Now, uh, is there a a new naming convention for them? Uh, If so, what is it?
2: So we're all going to be speaking Greek soon. So yeah, yeah. there's a, the new naming convention is um, the Greek alphabet and, and using that. The WHO specifically does not want the, the the variants named after the location for which which they were discovered, and the reason is that you, you see a lot of discrimination against those er- those areas. So um, they don't want it called the UK variant, the Indian variant. We've got these travel bans that are in place. We've got some people who use this. Um, as a form of of hate speech, then, and, and so because of that, they they want the scientific names um, used, and those were for pretty complicated, and so they've moved over to um, alpha, beta, gamma, um, and and then that naming convention.
1: Isn't it an amazing, doctor? Though I mean, the, I mean, yeah, the the reasoning makes a lot of sense. People obviously can't handle the other names because of all the things that you discussed, all the violence and harassment that has occurred uh, because of naming a, a variant from. Particular region, but is it, I mean that we have to go now to this level. I, it makes sense; it makes scientific sense. But how we got to it, it just baffles me.
2: Yeah, it is it is pretty sad. Um, you know, you'd 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 wish that these things would be less emotional and people would be more dispassionate about it and, and intellectual about it. But from now on, the you know, the the what we used to call the UK variant B117 is gonna be alpha, and the South African is gonna be um, beta, the Brazilian variant P1 is gonna be gamma, and then the Indian variants uh there uh B one six one seven and then some other numbers after that due to several variations the indians are ones are going to be called um delta
1: the one in california uh which which ones are present right now in california and how concerned should we be about them
2: so, in California, 63% are derived from the U.K. variant, so now the Alpha variant. Right. Um, we've got 10% from the Brazilian variant, 10% of the New York um, variant, less than 1% from um, the South African variant, and about 4% from the Indian variant. So, it's predominantly the, the U.K. variant, the one that's about 50% more transmissible.
1: Doctor, there's a lot of travel or a lot of partying happening, happening this <laughs> Memorial Day weekend. Any concerns that cases might spike somehow?
2: Yeah, they they could. I, I guess I'm just not expecting it like we saw last summer. One reason is that um, we've got a higher vaccination rate. Um, and then we're entering the summer. We do expect less transmission in the summer due to the changes in temperature and humidity. And a lot of the activities were taking place outdoors, where we know there's much less transmission. 90% of the transmission takes place indoors.
1: So if there is an uptick, would it be a much smaller spike? than maybe we'd be worried. Uh, to get to say last year at this time?
2: That's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping there is no uptick. I'm hoping that it'll be smooth sailing through the summer. And I guess my next point that I'm worried about for a surge would be sometime in the fall or the winter when we might have waning of immunity due to previous infection or vaccination. And then also the temperature and humidity would favor transmission.
1: Any worries about June 15th? That's when the state uh, is supposed to, on schedule at least, to reopen fully with no restrictions on June 15th.
2: I think we're in a really good place, and the timing's right. I think I think things are going well.
1: Uh, any advice on how we can go through the summer safely? Uh, you know, actually, doctor, you know, it's funny. I went to a movie. <laughs> I went to a movie. Oh, you did you? I, I did. I uh, my. It was my granddaughters. They'll get me. Mm-hmm. They can make me run through a fire pit. I would do it <laughs> for them if they asked me to. They wanted to go see a movie. I I I bought a ticket uh, and we all went and I w- actually I was afraid of nothing because I was we were far enough away from everyone else. I didn't feel unsafe. So, uh, you know, yeah, I think for a lot of people taking that first step, doctor, I think it's very very scary, right? Cuz you don't know exactly how things are going to be since we left them all a year ago, but I think uh, I think that first toe in the water actually kind of feels
2: good. Yeah, you're absolutely right that one of the issues is that we've all been conditioned by social distancing and masking um, about what's safe and what's not safe. And as we ease restrictions, um, sometimes it can be uncomfortable and we really have to try things on for size. So I remember the first time I went out to eat um, with my wife and friends. It was an outdoor venue and it just felt really weird to be sitting outside at a table without a mask on with these friends and then interacting with the the wait staff who were wearing masks, but it, it felt really odd. And, and so it just takes some getting used to.
1: You know, when it comes to travel, my wife right now is in Utah. She's visiting our youngest grandchildren. She says in Salt Lake City and in, in the area that no one is wearing a mask. No one. She's, she's you can tell who's Californian because she's actually wearing one, but no one else mm-hmm. is. So when it comes to travel, going to places where masks are not maybe as used as they are here. Um, I mean, what's your recommendation you know, with, with that? People looking to get away for a, to a place like that.
2: Well, you know, vaccination is extraordinarily effective. So, if you're fully vaccinated, if you're two weeks past your last recommended vaccine dose, the the main danger is not to you if you're around other people, not socially distanced and not masked. The main danger is to those who are unvaccinated who you're around. And so, so it, it takes some getting used to to really feel that way. But but that's what the CDC advice is. So it's safe to travel domestically. It's safe to travel internationally.
1: I'm going to go up and. Meet- Later, uh, mid mid June mid June so I, we'll see if someone says anything for wearing my mask in the middle of Salt Lake City Utah that's <laughs> mm-hmm. Dr Dean Blumberg professor of medicine and chief of pediatric infectious diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital doctor thank you very much thank you. California has the largest death row in the nation, over 700 cases. Now, a case is getting ready to be heard in the state Supreme Court that could one day make it harder to make that sentence happen and possibly reverse the ones already on the books. Find out all about it when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us.
3: At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes, you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Line takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Line wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC at kpcc.org. I'm E. Martinez. The California Supreme Court will begin hearing arguments tomorrow challenging the state's current application of the death penalty. Now, the decision could raise the bar for when capital punishment is used in sentencing and potentially reverse hundreds of deaths. Pending death sentences in California. Here to talk about the case and what's at stake is Rory Little, professor of law at UC Hastings in San Francisco, and co-author of a pro-defense court filing. Professor, welcome. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me. Now, the state supreme court will hear an appeal by Dante McDaniel. That's an LA man sentenced to death for two gang-related murders in 2004. Can you tell us uh, more about that case?
4: Well, uh, you know, like any uh, death penalty case, it's a it's a murder. It's a couple of murders and the facts are not happy. Uh, and the question isn't whether he should be convicted or not. His conviction has, uh, is not at issue in this case. It's simply whether the death penalty was imposed by the correct procedures. And it's not so much that it's going to make it difficult to get the death penalty. It's going to make it the same as every criminal case. Every criminal case we decide in this country has to be beyond a reasonable doubt and a unanimous jury. And the only place we don't do that is actually the imposition of the death penalty. And that's just an accident of history. If you go back 150 years in California, you discover that unanimity and beyond reasonable doubt were the rules for the death penalty until maybe about 30 or 40 years ago here. Mm
1: -hmm. So in this particular case, what are the Supreme Court justices asking both sides to do here?
4: Well, they have asked for supplemental briefing on the question, should the unanimity requirement for criminal juries apply to the death penalty that is should should the jury be unanimous on the death penalty including on aggravating factors and mitigating factors and should the burden of proof on whether the death penalty is appropriate be beyond a reasonable doubt just like it is in every other criminal case when we ask the jury to decide anything
1: and why has the california supreme court decided to hear this case
4: Well, of course, uh, there's an automatic appeal in every capital case, so they have to sort of hear the case. Why have they asked for this particular question? I think it's because the history in California is so clear. Up until uh, 30 or 40 years ago, everybody understood that juries in criminal cases had to decide the issues uh, unanimously and beyond a reasonable doubt. And then in the 1970s, we bifurcated the penalty from the trial. So in other words, now we have one trial on guilt and then the second trial on the penalty. When that happened, suddenly we started saying, well, the penalty doesn't have to be beyond reasonable doubt, and the penalty doesn't have to be unanimous. Uh, Well, now we know that juries, the U.S. Supreme Court actually just last year decided that criminal case juries have to be unanimous across the country. The question is, should that apply at the death penalty stage? Um, And the beyond reasonable doubt uh, standard has been in place constitutionally, again, under the U.S. Constitution for, since 1970 uh, and actually since probably 1780. Um, and so the only question is, why should the death penalty be any different? People say, well, the decision to apply the death penalty is not really a factual question. Uh, and that's certainly true. There's a normative, a moral aspect to that. But that doesn't mean a jury can't harbor a reasonable doubt. So, some cases are close. Some cases are close cases. Some cases aren't. And this decision, if it were to come out in favor of Mr. McDaniel, isn't going to change the result in the aggravated cases where, where jurors would have no trouble saying we believe this beyond reasonable doubt. Sure. But in close cases, it could make a difference.
1: Now, I know Governor Gavin Newsom has weighed in on this. So what's his position and why does it matter?
4: Well, you know, let's, let's put it this way. We know what Governor Newsom's position is. He's put a moratorium in on the death penalty, uh, you know, two years ago. So. Uh, his position is clear. He doesn't think there should be a death penalty. What's interesting about the brief that he joined is that it's also filed by a number of district attorneys, uh, dozens of county district attorneys in California. They have never filed a joint brief in, in, uh, on the defense side in a death penalty case. But on this case, they have filed in favor of Mr. McDaniel simply saying, you know, again, we just come back to the basic point, jury unanimity and beyond a reasonable doubt, are what we do in criminal cases, and we ought to do it for the death penalty.
1: You mentioned uh, some of the uh, reasons and ways capital punishment is typically decided on, but what is at stake here, ultimately, Professor, with this?
4: Well, you know, you can sort of go in descending orders of what's at stake. I mean, look, the first thing that's at stake is whether Mr. McDaniel should have a new sentencing proceeding. The second thing that's at stake is should all death penalty cases that are filed in the future you know, from this day forward, be subject to those same rules? Then you can ask, well, what about cases that have already been decided? And here the law generally makes a distinction between appeals that are final and appeals that aren't final. For appeals that are not final, uh, it's likely that if this came out in favor of Mr. McDaniel, then uh, those rules would apply to other cases currently on death row where their appeals are still pending. Uh, Then the last question is, Well, would it be retroactive for, say, 450, 500 other cases that have already been made final? And there's no um, there's no clear answer to that. Uh, And that's not an issue tomorrow. The question tomorrow is, should the rules be, you know, the way we've asked? Um, And whether that would be retroactive or not would be for a future case.
1: Okay. We're talking to Rory Little, professor of law at UC Hastings in San Francisco. Uh, What might the future of the death penalty be in California? I mean, I know you mentioned that that's down the road, but I mean, what other changes could lie ahead?
4: Well, you know, the the, the people of California are remarkably evenly divided on this question, right? The last two propositions, I think 2012, 2016, were, you know, 52% in favor of the death penalty. 48% against it, or 51-49, that's pretty close. Uh, We've got a governor who's got a moratorium now on the penalty. We haven't had an execution in some 15 years because different federal judges and state court judges have found that there are flaws in the system in California. Uh, We now repeatedly see people on death row, not a majority, but some people on death row, who turn out to be innocent after DNA evidence comes out that's making everybody pause and wonder, is this penalty something we should be spending, you know, millions of dollars on every year, especially if we're not quite sure. And the idea that we now decide it without the burden of proof being beyond a reasonable doubt is sort of surprising, it seems to me.
1: Wasn't there a 2016 ballot initiative to speed up executions that voters
4: uh, approved? They did. uh, And the status of that, of course, is Uh, on hold because of the moratorium, as well as some judicial challenges. Um, And again, it was 49% to 51% on that proposition. Uh, You know, and the the whole science of propositions in this country or in this state is a little bit crazy, right? It depends exactly how you word it, and it depends what, you know, fantastic cases happen in the mind of the electing public, you know, the day before the election, that kind of thing. Um, So I wouldn't it's hard to put much weight on the proposition other than it's 51 percent voted to keep the death penalty and try to speed it up. uh, Although whether that would work, you know, logistically is another question. We still have hundreds of people on death row in California who don't have lawyers um, because nobody wants to take the case because it's too expensive.
1: That's Rory Little, professor of law at UC Hastings in San Francisco. Professor, thanks a lot.
4: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: Now to the next installment in our series, Pushed Out, which examines the link between women's homelessness and domestic violence. About half of women in L.A. County say domestic abuse is the direct cause of their being unhoused. Take Two producer Julia Julia Paskin brings us the story of one woman's fight for safety and shelter.
5: Okay, so this is actually not a bad vantage point.
6: Susan Kolkiewicz points through a chain-link fence to behind a marble business where she used to sleep under an overpass in West L.A.
5: It was filled with these giant marble slabs. The person I was in the encampment with, he hitched a big tarp.
6: Susan stayed out of sight and kept it as clean as she could. For a bathroom, she used the pay toilet at the corner restaurant.
5: Those are just little things you have to think about, unfortunately, when you're picking an encampment, for women especially, because it's just not safe. At 53...
6: Susan had never expected to be homeless. Just a few years before, she had a well-paying career in IT. She lived in a nice duplex apartment, had savings and stock investments. But wanting love in her life, she went online and began dating. And she met someone she liked.
5: We were just casual, friendly-ish for a long time. After three
6: years, it was serious enough for him to move in with her. It all went well, but one night they had a disagreement. She didn't expect what happened next.
5: He had uh, Baskin-Robbins ice cream with a little pink spoon. He took the spoon and he flicked it at me. As I was walking away, it hit me, you know, on the back of my neck.
6: She let it go. But then other things started to happen.
5: Like I came home one time, and all of my pictures of previous boyfriends or friends from my life, even back from junior high, were all thrown out.
6: It got worse. He started hitting her. He would slam her against a wall or choke her. Susan was too scared to ask for help, but the neighbors called the police often. If they took him away, he'd be back within days.
5: I started to feel really incapable, constantly hearing how worthless I was. It really chips away. Then, Susan began to run out of money.
6: She had lost a third of her savings after the market crashed in 2008. In the recession that followed, her contracts and IT dried up, then her bank account, and then her unemployment. She did what she could to make rent and said her landlords were trying to work with her, but the abuse was the problem.
5: It was the police and the neighbors complaining about the police.
6: Finally, Susan was evicted. They started couch surfing with his friends. She was desperate to leave, but she didn't know where else to go. One day, she went for a routine doctor's visit. Clinic staff saw the bruises on her body. By law, they had to report the abuse. A counselor offered her a place at a domestic violence shelter. It was a way out, but she had to give up her phone, couldn't take anything with her, and had to go to Long Beach where she didn't know anyone. It felt like taking away the little she had left. She turned it down and went back to her abuser. But a few weeks later, his violence caught up with him. He had to appear in court and was finally put in jail.
5: So he was gone, and I was alone.
6: Now Susan didn't have anywhere to sleep.
5: I can't even describe the feeling of it being 9 o'clock at night and you're outside and you have nowhere to go. She
6: started riding the Metro bus all night long until someone offered her a place in a homeless encampment.
5: I was finally able to lie down at night and feel safe enough to close my eyes and I was so grateful.
6: But she was still living on the street. Eventually, a case manager got her a referral to an emergency homeless shelter. But as a woman without kids, she didn't score high enough in the county evaluation to get permanent support. And she was too ashamed to tell them she was a domestic violence victim. So she had to leave.
5: To have got a reprieve from the awfulness and then having to go back into it, it almost made me wish I hadn't even had the reprieve.
6: She moved back to the encampment under the overpass. After a year of living unsheltered, Susan finally qualified for help. She ended up in a shared house with five other women, some mentally unstable. One would scream through the night. She spent her time researching and applying for the few subsidized apartment buildings in L.A. After two years, she found one for seniors, just a couple blocks away from where she used to sleep under the freeway.
5: I just was relieved and happy, and I felt like, okay, okay, now I felt like I really was making my way back to having a life. She's
6: now a resident manager of a shelter and advocates for survivors, sitting on boards and testifying before legislators.
5: I don't want someone who's suffering from domestic violence to ever have to spend a year outside. That just doubled the trauma and there was no need for that. Susan says through her work,
6: she's restoring her own sense of self-worth.
5: I'm Julia Paskin.
1: Next in our reporting on the link between women's homelessness and domestic violence, we're going to hear how a local survivor had to leave her home and all of her belongings behind just to get away from her abuser. It's a story that's all too common and part of our series called Pushed Out. All right, what to do with malls and retail stores shut down by sales moving online and the pandemic? Well, how about affordable housing? California lawmakers are figuring out how doable that could be. We'll hear all about it when Take Two continues. Stay with us.
6: An unexpected story out of the so-called hot labor summer the club that reopened as the only
7: unionized strip club in the U.S. We just had a lot of love for each other. And we solidified that the only way we're going to be able to do something is if we organize together. The strippers behind the headlines
6: and the secret and messy work of unionizing their club. Binge all four episodes of Imperfect Paradise Strippers Union wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC and most places you get your podcasts. I'm Amy e. Martinez. Big box stores aren't what they used to be, at least not so much in person. The rise in online sales accelerated in the pandemic, and you can see the evidence in vacant storefronts throughout Southern California. So in a state where there is a perpetual housing and homelessness crisis, there's been a push to build more homes on land zoned only for commercial use. State Senator Anthony Portantino of Los Angeles has authored a bill to give financial incentives to landowners who make that switch.
0: The way we monetize land use, Uh, has created a disincentive for California cities to favor retail over building housing because they get a larger percentage of sales tax dollars when they build retail. Obviously, with the changing retail marketplace and having a significant number of dormant strip malls and malls and retail establishments around the state, cities have long just let those sit there and become blight because they wait for the next big box to come into town. And so what we wanted to do is shift from a punitive housing approach to an incentive-based approach
1: that again was state senator anthony portentino of los angeles but for more on the movement to legalize housing on commercial lots we have uh, associated press reporter adam beam with us uh, adam welcome back hi thanks for having me all right in that clip with state senator portentino he mentioned sales tax incentives as one reason cities um, may profit from holding on to vacant storefronts is there uh, more to that story
2: though
0: well, yeah. I mean, you know, cities make a lot more money from sales taxes than they do from property taxes. So the idea is to kind of give them some – to make up that loss in revenue they would lose if they were to rezone, say, like an, an old Sears or Kmart and rezone it for a, a big apartment building. They're going to lose money. Uh, they're going to get less money from that than they would. So the idea is, well, we'll give you seven years' worth of sales taxes hmm. uh, you know, to make up the difference. And so you can go ahead and rezone that, and and get, and we can get this project off the ground. So, seven,
1: wow, seven years of, of sales tax that they – I mean, that thing would be just sitting there anyway, right? Uh, is that the logic there?
0: Yeah, and a lot of times local governments are, are content to let them sit there because, again, there's no incentive yeah. for them to allow a house or housing project there when they, wouldn't, when they would just get more money. And they, I hope that a Sears or some other big retailer would come in and, and save the day.
1: Adam, what about zoning laws, and what's the legislative proposal to sidestep that barrier?
0: Well, you know, these zoning laws, they're they're local laws that allow for, you know, certain types of development on certain pieces of land, and in most places, places that are zoned commercial, do not allow for residential development. Uh, There's always exceptions to that, but in a lot of these places, they don't allow for that. And so developers really don't try to get the zoning changed because it just take, it takes way too long, it costs a lot of money, and it's just it's not worth it to them to try that. So they don't even try. So what they want to try to do is take that step out of the equation. Let's allow for developers to build housing projects on these types of sites that are already zoned commercial, and, and preferably that they're sitting there abandoned, because that makes the most sense. These sites—they already have a lot of ample parking. Many of them are surrounded by these giant yeah, yeah. parking lots, and they're also already close to existing neighborhoods and schools and other type services that so makes them ideal location. Is this
1: happening anywhere else in the country, or is California kind of uh, on you know, going in uncharted waters on this? If they if they do this,
0: well, I certainly think that uh, the rest of the country has the same problem or the same issue of empty malls or empty big box stores. Um, but I, I think California, if they're successful, they would be the first state that would allow for this multifamily-type housing on commercial sites statewide.
1: And you mentioned uh, the, the the space, all that parking space. But, I, you know, when I'm thinking about malls and stores, there's a lot of bus stops. Uh, now there's subway stops. There's train stops. So there's transit options. And usually they're near city centers, too. So that, that seems to be building the case for this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you're looking around and trying to find a place to build, you know, your people are running out of land, you know. Wow. Uh, and so wh- where where can we go that's already, that's tailor-made? And these sites seem tailor-made, but there's a lot of hurdles that get in the way. And this, this there's a bunch of bills, uh, or two bills, moving through the legislature that seek to make it a little easier.
1: Now, there's some opposition to this approach coming from the state legislature. What are the concerns for local government control if the bill passes?
0: Well, there's a lot of cities and county leaders who view this as undermining their authority because, you know, they are the ones that pass these zoning laws. They're the ones that have decided as a community, we want shopping to go here, not housing. And so they feel like if this bill were to become law, now, yes, developers would still have to get approval from local governments in order to get these projects going. But in general, it would be harder for local governments to stop it if developers were to use this process.
1: Getting approval from local government—that's that's the thing, though, right, Adam? That's that's always the biggest hurdle for most things.
0: Absolutely, and and another disagreement that's really popped up—that's kind of fascinating—is between labor unions and uh, affordable housing advocates, because these bills would require that uh, these projects be built by what's called skilled and trained labor. These are people that have gone through a state-approved apprenticeship program. And affordable housing developers feel like if they do that, that's going to severely limit the number of construction workers available to build these projects. And while this may be feasible in a place like Los Angeles, if you go somewhere further inland, a more rural area, there might not be as many workers that are skilled and trained available and it could delay those projects.
1: Is it worth it Adam for local governments to to wait or try to wait out the pandemic for brick and mortar stores to return? Is there any indication of them coming back after the pandemic? Well, whenever just, that happens to be by the way cuz it's not over.
0: Yeah, that's right. It certainly doesn't seem that way. You know, this was a problem even before the pandemic began. You know, there were at least I think 26 or 29 Sears and Kmart stores that closed in Southern California at the end of 2019 and the beginning of 2020, and that was just because of existing market conditions. You know, people shifting their sales, their purchasing power to places like Amazon and other and other places, and they're not going to these big box stores anymore. And so, even before the pandemic began, this was a problem. So, I mean, the pandemic certainly accelerated that trend. There's a lot of big box retailers, big names like J. Crew and Neiman Marcus, that declared bankruptcy. During the pandemic, uh, and thus I certainly think that contributed to it. But this was has been set in motion long ago, and so I, I think that even now, as we're coming out of it, I, I don't see a, a quick return for a lot of these big box retailers to return to these sites.
1: We're talking to Associated Press reporter Adam Beam about the proposal to allow commercial lots to be repurposed for affordable housing. You mentioned earlier um, the legislature, both proposals in the legislature requiring developers to use a skilled and trained workforce to build the housing. Uh, when it comes to union response, though, uh, what's what's been the response from union leaders on on all this?
0: Well, the response has been that that it's not true that there is a shortage of workers. They they point to their apprenticeship programs statewide that are growing every year. They say they have plenty of workers. I interviewed Robbie Hunter. Robbie is the president of the Building Trades Council for California. He says that there's no big project that he's aware of that has ever been delayed because of a lack of workers. So they view this as kind of just a typical, you know, these... Uh, what they so-called greedy developers that are trying to shortchange the workers and you know this this skilled and trained language has been popping up in more and more housing bills that have come across the legislature's desk and it's becoming increasingly difficult to pass a bill without it. There was a bill in the legislature earlier this year that would have done something very similar as as far as allowing commercial uh, residential development on commercial sites but it did not have that skilled and trained language in it initially and it died. It failed to pass because of a lack of votes. So clearly, you know, for lawmakers to get this passed, they they feel like they have to have this provision in there.
1: Considering the competing interests involved here, Adam, housing advocates, labor leaders, what does it mean for Democratic lawmakers? I mean, does one have more sway than the other in uh, in this case?
0: Well, it appears that the labor unions are, are winning this particular fight. Uh, as I as I previously mentioned, that bill that that did not have that language in there, at least initially, I think there was some commitment language in there, but not uh, final language in there. Didn't pass. So I, it looks like the the labor unions are winning this this type particular battle. But you know, the legislative session is about half over now. Uh, we're gonna you know the, the bill. Both bills that I've previously talked about have passed. Um, The the rezoning one passed last week. The bill that would provide financial incentives to cities and counties actually passed a a few hours ago today in the state Senate. So now it's going to go over to the state assembly. There could be plenty of changes before these finally become law, if they do.
1: One of these things, uh, Adam, about this uh, case that fascinates me, that in California, Big Blue California. You still, there's still, you know, the Democratic Party in California isn't completely a monolith. There are still definitely competing interests on, on both sides of the party, regardless of uh, how maybe democratic an idea seems in, in, in principle.
0: Exactly. And, you know, a lot of uh, Democrats at various levels face different political pressures that 's why you you 'll see these big ambitious proposals in the legislature from people that are elected you know from large districts and a lot of times those proposals fail because of opposition sometimes from Democrats at the local level because they face different political pressures than than state yeah. lawmakers do so it really it 's really hard to say it 's a republican or democratic issue so housing is a really a geographic issue it seems.
1: Adam Beam is a reporter for the Associated Press. Adam, thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you. if you're a listener of Take Two, you should know by now that I am terrified of butterflies. I'm not kidding about that. They really, really scare me. It's been that way since I was a little kid. It's embarrassing, I know, but I can't do anything about it. That doesn't mean, though, that I hate butterflies. We're going to hear about a statewide effort to give monarch butterflies the milkweed they need to survive, thrive, and keep those little wings flapping. That's coming up when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us.
7: She
3: Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Where are you.
1: Back now with more take two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm A. Martinez. The population of Western monarch butterflies in California has been plummeting. It's fallen to just under 2,000, a devastating drop. And you think that just over 20 years ago, there were more than a million overwintering monarchs in the state. Now, in the 80s, it was more like 4 million. This dramatic decline has really prompted an urgent response from the state with a $1 million project to rebuild habitats for the monarchs. This plan includes planting nearly 30,000 milkwood plants. Milkweed, milkweed plants, the only vegetation that adult butterflies lay their eggs on and that their caterpillars can eat. The idea is that it'll give butterflies new spots to breed and fuel up for migration. Here to tell us about the preservation efforts, we have with us Angela Laws, biologist at Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation, the group working on projects to save the monarchs. Angela, welcome to Take Two.
7: Thanks for
1: having me. All right. uh, Why did the butterfly population plummet so dramatically this past year?
7: So it's hard to say what exactly caused this recent population crash, but there are a variety of factors that have caused their population to decline over the past um, 20 years or so. So those include habitat loss, both of breeding habitat, which includes loss of milkweed, and loss of habitat in the overwintering sites. So the monarchs, the western monarchs, overwinter all along the California coast, and those overwintering sites actually have no formal protection. So every year, these sites continue to be lost or degraded.
1: Angela, you have to. You go. Go
7: ahead. Go ahead. Um, And I was going to mention also climate change and, of course, pesticides. So herbicides can reduce the abundance of milkweed and nectar plants, but um, insecticides can actually kill the monarchs. And we did a study two years ago with uh, Matt Forrester's lab at University of Nevada Reno, where we collected leaves from milkweed plants around the northern part of the Central Valley. So out of 227 milkweed plants, every single one had pesticides with an average of nine different pesticides per plant. So that's in ag areas, it's in urban areas, it's in plants we purchase from nurseries, it's in natural areas, it's everywhere. And so these are things we have to get a handle on if we want to protect this species.
1: So that that to me, Angela, sounds like a, a clue as to why maybe the butterfly population has been in trouble.
7: Yeah, yeah, all of these things yeah. are creating this this mix of
1: yeah. toxic, <laughs> of mix. bad conditions. Yeah. yeah. What's the risk to ecosystems in California if monarch butterfly populations keep declining?
7: So monarchs are pollinators, which means they move pollen from one plant to another and allow that plant to reproduce and the problem is is that all of these factors that are causing monarch populations to decline so habitat loss climate change pesticides disease are also affecting many other species of pollinators so it's not just monarchs though their declines in recent years are really dramatic but many butterflies many bumblebees many species of native bees are also experiencing these declines and so if that continues to happen um, that has consequences for for natural areas, for the plants and animals that require that rely on these pollinators, and also for human health and well-being. Uh, so much of our diet is pollinated by insects.
3: Yeah,
1: that's that's how that works. I mean, I mean it makes <laughs> a lot of sense. Um, okay, so when it comes to planting milkweed, what is the plan for that?
7: So there are many there are many different species of milkweed in the state. Um, This project, particular project with River Partners, we're planting three different species of milkweed. Um, It can be really tricky to get native milkweeds to establish in California. Um, It's it's really fickle. Um, So we're trying to make sure to irrigate really well. (laughs) There's a lot of work that the folks at River Partners are doing to monitor these plants, make sure that they're getting established and also planting other things like nectar plants um, for monarchs and other pollinators.
1: And milkweed is, is it native to California?
7: Yes. Yes. There are several species that are native in the state. I think it's about 17 species. Um, but three of them that are commercially available, um, are going to be used in these different sites around the state.
1: And how do you know where to put them to, to try and make sure you capitalize on their migratory patterns?
7: So we've done some work, Society Society's done some work with Fish and Wildlife Service and others to look at where monarchs are breeding um, at different times of the year. And we think that first generation, that's the first one to breed in the spring is really important for helping this, this population persist. And so we've looked at um, records that we get from community scientists who uh, contribute data to our Western monarch milkweed mapper. Um, to look at where monarchs are when they're breeding in that first generation. And so most of these sites, I think all of these sites actually fall into that zone where that first generation of monarchs is going to be looking for, for a milkweed, looking for a place to breed, to lay that first generation of, of eggs in the spring.
1: Yeah. Get them off to a good start. I would imagine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have similar efforts elsewhere proven successful on this?
7: Well, (laughs) there's, it's, it's, Difficult to say in relation to to the dramatic decline of monarchs, but there have been people around the state doing a lot of work to restore habitat for monarchs, a lot of efforts to plant milkweed and other um, nectar plants and so it is it can be successful, you just have to do a lot of site prep and uh, maintenance of, of these sites to make sure that the plants establish.
1: One last thing, Angela, really quick. Uh, what are the hopes for this conservation project? I mean, where would you like to see the population be at this time next year if we're having this conversation then?
7: Well, I hope that the population is, is up. Uh, Xerxes runs a monitoring project every fall or overwintering uh, to measure the overwintering sites. So I'm hoping that those numbers tick up. One thing about insects is their populations do bounce around a lot. So okay. there is still hope for them to recover.
1: That's Angela Laws, biologist at Xerces Society. Angela, thank you very much.
7: Thanks for having me.
1: Right, if you missed any part of Take Two, you can just find us wherever you get your podcasts. There we will be waiting to be heard by you. You can also find us on social media. We're on Twitter at Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well at AmartinezLA. That's at AmartinezLA. That's good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back tomorrow at 2. Talk to you then. Marketplace is next.
3: Hey, it's Brian, the host of How to L.A., a podcast that is a love letter to Los Angeles. Independent movie theaters are having a glow-up moment.
5: Vidiot's and Eagle Rock, amazing. We have our friends at the American Cinematheque. The Vista just reopened.
3: In our new series, Revival House, we'll take you inside these spots and share their history. Because movie history is L.A. history. Listen to Revival House on How to L.A. wherever you listen to podcasts.